Chapter Eight, Part Two of the Condition of the Working Class in England in eighteen forty four. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Condition of the Working Class in England in eighteen forty four by Friedrich Engels. Chapter Eight Labor Movements, Part Two. In this connection, a word or two as to the respect for the law in England. True, the law is sacred to the bourgeois, for it is his own composition, enacted with his consent, and for his benefit and protection. He knows that, even if an individual law should injure him, the whole fabric protects his interests, and more than all, the sanctity of the law, the sacredness of order, as established by the act of will of one part of society, and the passive acceptance of the other, is the strongest support of his social position because the english bourgeois finds himself reproduced in his law as he does in his god the policeman's truncheon which in a certain measure is his own club has for him a wonderfully soothing power but for the working-man quite otherwise the working-man knows too well has learned from too oft-repeated experience that the law is a rod which the bourgeois has prepared for him and when he is not compelled to do so he never appeals to the law it is ridiculous to assert that the English workingman fears the police, when every week in Manchester policemen are beaten, and last year an attempt was made to storm a station-house secured by iron doors and shutters. The power of the police in the turnout of 1842 lay, as I have already said, in the want of a clearly defined object on the part of the workingmen themselves. Since the workingmen do not respect the law, but simply submit to its power when they cannot change it, it is most natural that they should at least propose alterations in it, that they should wish to put a proletarian law in the place of the legal fabric of the bourgeoisie. This proposed law is the People's Charter, which in form is purely political, and demands a democratic basis for the House of Commons. Chartism is the compact form of their opposition to the bourgeoisie. In the unions and turnouts, opposition always remained isolated. It was single workingmen or sections who fought a single bourgeois. If the fight became general, this was scarcely by the intention of the workingmen, or when it did happen intentionally, Chartism was at the bottom of it. But in Chartism it is the whole working class which arises against the bourgeoisie, and attacks first of all the political power, the legislative rampart with which the bourgeoisie has surrounded itself. Chartism has proceeded from the Democratic Party, which arose between 1780 and 1790, with and in the proletariat, gained strength during the French Revolution, and came forth after the peace as the Radical Party. It had its headquarters then in Birmingham and Manchester, and later in London. Extorted the Reform Bill from the oligarchs of the old Parliament by a union with the liberal bourgeoisie, and has steadily consolidated itself since then, as a more and more pronounced workingmen's party in opposition to the bourgeoisie. In eighteen thirty five, a committee of the General Workingmen's Association of London, with William Lovett at its head, drew up the People's Charter, whose six points are as follows one universal suffrage for every man who is of age, sane and unconvicted of crime, two annual parliaments, three payment of members of parliament to enable poor men to stand for election four voting by ballot to prevent bribery and intimidation by the bourgeoisie five equal electoral districts to secure equal representation and six 
abolition of the even now merely nominal property qualification of three hundred pounds in land for candidates in order to make every voter eligible these six points which are all limited to the reconstitution of the house of commons harmless as they seem are sufficient to overthrow the whole english constitution queen and lords included the so-called monarchical and aristocratic elements of the constitution can maintain themselves only because the bourgeoisie has an interest in the continuance of their sham existence and more than a sham existence neither possesses to-day but as soon as real public opinion in its totality backs the house of commons as soon as the house of commons incorporates the will not of the bourgeoisie alone but of the whole nation it will absorb the whole power so completely that the last halo must fall from the head of the monarch and the aristocracy the english workingman respects neither lords nor queen the bourgeois while in reality allowing them but little influence yet offers to them personally a sham worship the english chartist is politically a republican though he rarely or never mentions the word while he sympathizes with the republican parties of all countries and calls himself in preference a democrat but he is more than a mere republican his democracy is not simply political chartism was from the beginning in eighteen thirty five chiefly a movement among the workingmen though not yet sharply separated from the bourgeoisie the radicalism of the workers went hand in hand with the radicalism of the bourgeoisie the charter was the shibboleth of both they held their national convention every year in common seeming to be one party the lower middle class was just then in a very bellicose and violent state of mind in consequence of the disappointment over the reform bill and of the bad business years of eighteen thirty seven to eighteen thirty nine and viewed the boisterous chartist agitation with a very favourable eye of the vehemence of this agitation no one in germany has any idea the people were called upon to arm themselves were frequently urged to revolt pikes were got ready as in the french revolution and in eighteen thirty eight one stevens a methodist parson said to the assembled working people of manchester quote, you have no need to fear the power of government the soldiers bayonets and cannon that are at the disposal of your oppressors you have a weapon that is far mightier than all these a weapon against which bayonets and cannon are powerless and a child of ten years can wield it you have only to take a couple of matches and a bundle of straw dipped in pitch and i will see what the government and its hundreds of thousands of soldiers will do against this one weapon if it is used boldly as early as that year the peculiarly social character of the workingmen's chartism manifested itself the same stephen said in a meeting of two hundred thousand men on kersal moor the mon sacre of manchester quote, chartism my friends is no political movement where the main point is you are getting the ballot chartism is a knife and fork question the charter means a good house good food and drink prosperity and short working hours the movements against the new poor law and for the ten hours bill were already in the closest relation to chartism in all the meetings of that time the tory ostler was active and hundreds of petitions for improvements of the social condition of the workers were circulated along with the national petition for the people's charter adopted in birmingham in eighteen thirty nine the agitation continued as vigorously as ever and when it began to relax somewhat at the end of the year Busey, taylor and frost hastened to call forth uprisings simultaneously in the north of england in yorkshire and wales frost's plan being betrayed 
he was obliged to open hostilities prematurely. Those in the north heard of the failure of his attempt in time to withdraw. Two months later, in January 1840, several so-called spy outbreaks took place in Sheffield and Bradford in Yorkshire, and the excitement gradually subsided. Meanwhile, the bourgeoisie turned its attention to more practical projects, more profitable for itself, namely the Corn Laws. The Anti-Corn Law Association was formed in Manchester, and the consequence was a relaxation of the tie between the radical bourgeoisie and the proletariat. The workingmen soon perceived that for them the abolition of the Corn Laws could be of little use, while very advantageous to the bourgeoisie, and they could therefore not be won for the project. The crisis of 1842 came on. Agitation was once more as vigorous as in 1839. But this time the rich manufacturing bourgeoisie, which was suffering severely under this particular crisis, took part in it. The Anti-Corn Law League, as it was now called, assumed a decidedly revolutionary tone. Its journals and agitators used undisguisedly revolutionary language, one very good reason for which was the fact that the Conservative Party had been in power since 1841. As the Chartists had previously done, these bourgeois leaders called upon the people to rebel, and the workingmen who had most to suffer from the crisis were not inactive, as the year's national petition for the Charter, with its three and a half million signatures, proves. In short, if the two radical parties had been somewhat estranged, they allied themselves once more. At a meeting of Liberals and Chartists held in Manchester, February 15, 1842, a petition urging the repeal of the Corn Laws and the adoption of the Charter was drawn up. The next day it was adopted by both parties. The spring and summer passed amidst violent agitation and increasing distress. The bourgeoisie was determined to carry the repeal of the Corn Laws with the help of the crisis, the want which it entailed, and the general excitement. At this time, the Conservatives being in power, the liberal bourgeoisie half abandoned their law-abiding habits, they wished to bring about a revolution with the help of the workers. The working men were to take the chestnuts from the fire to save the bourgeoisie from burning their own fingers. The old idea of a quote-unquote holy month, a general strike, broached in 1839 by the Chartists, was revived. This time, however, it was not the working men who wished to quit work, but the manufacturers who wished to close their mills and send the operatives into the country parishes upon the property of the aristocracy thus forcing the Tory Parliament and the Tory Ministry to repeal the Corn Laws. A revolt would naturally have followed, but the bourgeoisie stood safely in the background and could await the result without compromising itself if the worst came to the worst. At the end of July business began to improve. It was high time. In order not to lose the opportunity, three firms in Stallybridge reduced wages in spite of the improvement whether they did so of their own motion or in agreement with other manufacturers, especially those of the League, I do not know. Two withdrew after a time, but the third, William Balian Brothers, stood firm, and told the objecting operatives that, quote, if this did not please them, they had better go and play a bit, end quote. This contemptuous answer the hands received with cheers. They left the mill, paraded through the town, and called upon all their fellows to quit work. In a few hours every mill stood idle, and the operatives marched to Mottram Moor to hold a meeting. This was on August 5th. August 8th they proceeded to Ashton and Hyde, five thousand strong, 
closed all the mills and coal-pits, and held meetings, in which, however, the question discussed was not, as the bourgeoisie had hoped, the repeal of the corn laws, but, quote, a fair day's wages for a fair day's work, end quote. August 9th they proceeded to Manchester, unresisted by the authorities, all liberals, and closed the mills. On the 11th they were in Stockport, where they met with the first resistance, as they were storming the workhouse, the favourite child of the bourgeoisie. On the same day there was a general strike and disturbance in Bolton, to which the authorities here too made no resistance. Soon the uprising spread throughout the whole manufacturing district, and all employments, except harvesting and the production of food, came to a standstill. But the rebellious operatives were quiet. They were driven into this revolt without wishing it. The manufacturers, with the single exception of the Tory Burley in Manchester, had, contrary to their custom, not opposed it. The thing had begun without the working men's having any distinct end in view, for which reason they were all united in the determination not to be shot at for the benefit of the corn-law repealing bourgeoisie. For the rest, some wanted to carry the charter, others who thought this premature wished merely to secure the wages rate of 1840. On this point the whole insurrection was wrecked. If it had been from the beginning an intentional, determined working men's insurrection, it would surely have carried its point but these crowds who had been driven into the streets by their masters against their own will and with no definite purpose could do nothing meanwhile the bourgeoisie which had not moved a finger to carry the alliance of february tenth into effect soon perceived that the workingmen did not propose to become its tools and that the illogical manner in which it had abandoned its law-abiding standpoint threatened danger it therefore resumed its law-abiding attitude and placed itself upon the side of government as against the working men. It swore in trusty retainers as special constables, the German merchants in Manchester took part in this ceremony, and marched in an entirely superfluous manner through the city, with their cigars in their mouths and thick truncheons in their hands. It gave the command to fire upon the crowd in Preston, so that the unintentional revolt of the people stood all at once face to face, not only with the whole military power of the government, but with the whole property-holding class as well. The workingmen, who had no especial aim, separated gradually, and the insurrection came to an end without evil results. Later the bourgeoisie was guilty of one shameful act after another, tried to whitewash itself by expressing a horror of popular violence by no means consistent with its own revolutionary language of the spring laid the blame of insurrection upon Chartist instigators, whereas it had itself done more than all of them together to bring about the uprising, and resumed its old attitude of sanctifying the name of the law with a shamelessness perfectly unequalled. The Chartists, who were all but innocent of bringing about this uprising, who simply did what the bourgeoisie meant to do when they made the most of their opportunity, were prosecuted and convicted, while the bourgeoisie escaped without loss and had besides sold off its old stock of goods with advantage during the pause in work. The fruit of the uprising was the decisive separation of the proletariat from the bourgeoisie. The Chartists had not hitherto concealed their determination to carry the Charter at all costs, even that of a revolution. The bourgeoisie, which now perceived all at once the danger with which any violent change threatened its position, refused to hear anything further of physical force, 
and propose to attain its end by moral force, as though this were anything else than the direct or indirect threat of physical force. This was one point of dissension, though even this was removed later by the assertion of the Chartists, who are at least as worthy of being believed as the bourgeoisie, that they too refrain from appealing to physical force. The second point of dissension, and the main one, which brought Chartism to light in its purity, was the repeal of the Corn Laws. In this the bourgeoisie was directly interested, the proletariat not. The Chartists, therefore, divided into two parties, whose political programs agreed literally, but which were nevertheless thoroughly different and incapable of union. At the Birmingham National Convention in January 1843, Sturge, the representative of the radical bourgeoisie, proposed that the name of the Charter be omitted from the rules of the Chartist Association, nominally because this name had become connected with recollections of violence during the insurrection, a connection, by the way, which had existed for years, and against which Mr. Sturge had hitherto advanced no objection. The workingmen refused to drop the name, and when Mr. Sturge was outvoted, that worthy Quaker suddenly became loyal, betook himself out of the hall, and founded a quote-unquote complete suffrage association within the radical bourgeoisie. So repugnant had these recollections become to the Jacobinical bourgeoisie that he altered even the name universal suffrage into the ridiculous title complete suffrage. The workingmen laughed at him and quietly went their way. From this moment Chartism was purely a workingman's cause, freed from all bourgeois elements. The quote-unquote complete journals, the Weekly Dispatch, Weekly Chronicle, Examiner, etc., fell gradually into the sleepy tone of the other liberal sheets, espoused the cause of free trade, attacked the Ten Hours Bill and all exclusively working men's demands, and let their radicalism as a whole fall rather into the background. The radical bourgeoisie joined hands with the liberals against the working men in every collision, and in general made the Corn Law question, which for the English is the free trade question, their main business. They thereby fell under the dominion of the liberal bourgeoisie, and now play a most pitiful role. The Chartist workingmen, on the contrary, espoused with redoubled zeal all the struggles of the proletariat against the bourgeoisie. Free competition has caused the workers suffering enough to be hated by them. Its apostles, the bourgeoisie, are their declared enemies. The workingman has only disadvantages to await from the complete freedom of competition. The demands hitherto made by him, the Ten Hours Bill, protection of the workers against the capitalist, good wages, a guaranteed position, repeal of the new poor law, all of the things which belong to Chartism quite as essentially as the six points, are directly opposed to free competition and free trade. No wonder, then, that the workingmen will not hear of free trade and the repeal of the Corn Laws, a fact incomprehensible to the whole English bourgeoisie and while at least wholly indifferent to the Corn Law question, are most deeply embittered against its advocates. This question is precisely the point at which the proletariat separates from the bourgeoisie, chartism from radicalism, and the bourgeois understanding cannot comprehend this, because it cannot comprehend the proletariat. Therein lies the difference between chartist democracy and all previous political bourgeois democracy. Chartism is of an essentially social nature, a class movement. The six points, which for the radical bourgeois are the beginning and end of the matter, 
which are meant at the utmost to call forth certain further reforms of the constitution are for the proletarian a mere means to further ends Quote, political power our means social happiness our end is now the clearly formulated war-cry of the Chartists. The quote-unquote knife-and-fork question of the preacher Stevens was a truth for a part of the Chartists only in 1838. It is a truth for all of them in 1845. There is no longer a mere politician among the Chartists, and even though their socialism is very little developed, though their chief remedy for poverty has hitherto consisted in the land allotment system, which was superseded by the introduction of manufacture, though their chief practical propositions are apparently of a reactionary nature, yet these very measures involve the alternative that they must either succumb to the power of competition once more, and restore the old state of things, or they must themselves entirely overcome competition and abolish it. On the other hand, the present indefinite state of Chartism, the separation from the purely political party involves that precisely the characteristic feature its social aspect will have to be further developed the approach to socialism cannot fail especially when the next crisis directs the workingmen by force of sheer want to social instead of political remedies and a crisis must follow the present active state of industry and commerce in eighteen forty seven at the latest and probably in eighteen forty six one, too, which will far exceed in extent and violence all former crises. The working men will carry their charter, naturally, but meanwhile they will learn to see clearly with regard to many points which they can make by means of it, and of which they now know very little. Meanwhile the socialist agitation also goes forward. English socialism comes under our consideration so far only as it affects the working class. The English socialists demand the gradual introduction of possession in common in home colonies embracing two to three thousand persons who shall carry on both agriculture and manufacture, enjoy equal rights and equal education. They demand greater facility of obtaining divorce, the establishment of a rational government, with complete freedom of conscience and the abolition of punishment, the same to be replaced by a rational treatment of the offender. These are their practical measures their theoretical principles do not concern us here english socialism arose with owen a manufacturer and proceeds therefore with great consideration toward the bourgeoisie and great injustice toward the proletariat in its methods although it culminates in demanding the abolition of the class antagonism between bourgeoisie and proletariat the socialists are thoroughly tame and peaceable except our existing order bad as it is so far as to reject all other methods but that of winning public opinion. Yet they are so dogmatic that success by this method is for them, and for their principles as at present formulated, utterly hopeless. While bemoaning the demoralization of the lower classes, they are blind to the element of progress in this dissolution of the old social order, and refuse to acknowledge that the corruption wrought by private interests and hypocrisy in the property-holding class is much greater. They acknowledge no historic development, and wish to place the nation in a state of communism at once, overnight, not by the unavoidable march of its political development up to the point at which this transition becomes both possible and necessary. They understand, it is true, why the working man is resentful against the bourgeois, but regard as unfruitful this class hatred, which is, after all, the only moral incentive by which the worker can be brought nearer the goal they preach instead 
a philanthropy and universal love far more unfruitful for the present state of england they acknowledge only a psychological development a development of man in the abstract out of all relation to the past whereas the whole world rests upon that past the individual man included hence they are too abstract too metaphysical and accomplish little they are recruited in part from the working class of which they have enlisted but a very small fraction representing however its most educated and solid elements in its present form socialism can never become the common creed of the working class it must condescend to return for a moment to the chartist standpoint but the true proletarian socialism having passed through chartism purified of its bourgeois elements assuming the form which it has already reached in the minds of many socialists and chartist leaders who are nearly all socialists must within a short time play a weighty part in the history of the development of the english people english socialism the basis of which is much more ample than that of the french is behind it in theoretical development will have to recede for a moment to the french standpoint in order to proceed beyond it later meanwhile the french too will develop farther english socialism affords the most pronounced expression of the prevailing absence of religion among the working men an expression so pronounced indeed that the mass of the working men being unconsciously and merely practically irreligious often draw back before it but here too necessity will force the working men to abandon the remnants of a belief which as they will more and more clearly perceive serves only to make them weak and resigned to their fate obedient and faithful to the vampire property-holding class hence it is evident that the workingmen's movement is divided into two sections the chartists and the socialists the chartists are theoretically the more backward the less developed but they are genuine proletarians all over the representatives of their class the socialists are more far-seeing propose practical remedies against distress but proceeding originally from the bourgeoisie are for this reason unable to amalgamate completely with the working class the union of socialism with chartism the reproduction of french communism in an english manner will be the next step and has already begun then only when this has been achieved will the working class be the true intellectual leader of england meanwhile political and social development will proceed and will foster this new party this new departure of chartism these different sections of working men often united often separated trades unionists chartists and socialists have founded on their own hook numbers of schools and reading-rooms for the advancement of education every socialist and almost every chartist institution has such a place and so too have many trades here the children receive a purely proletarian education free from all the influences of the bourgeoisie and in the reading-rooms proletarian journals and books alone or almost alone are to be found these arrangements are very dangerous for the bourgeoisie which has succeeded in withdrawing several such institutes quote-unquote mechanics institutes from proletarian influences and making them organs for the dissemination of the sciences useful to the bourgeoisie here the natural sciences are now taught which may draw the working-men away from the opposition to the bourgeoisie and perhaps place in their hands the means of making inventions which bring in money for the bourgeoisie while for the working-man the acquaintance with the natural sciences is utterly useless now 
when it too often happens that he never gets the slightest glimpse of nature in his large town with his long working hours here political economy is preached whose idol is free competition and whose sum and substance for the working-man is this that he cannot do anything more rational than resign himself to starvation here all education is tame flabby subservient to the ruling politics and religion so that for the working-man it is merely a constant sermon upon quiet obedience passivity and resignation to his fate the mass of working-men naturally have nothing to do with these institutes and betake themselves to the proletarian reading-rooms and to the discussions of matters which directly concern their own interests whereupon the self-sufficient bourgeoisie says its dixie et salvavi and turns with contempt from a class which quote, prefers the angry ranting of ill-meaning demagogues to the advantages of solid education end quote. that however the working-men appreciate solid education when they can get it unmixed with the interested cant of the bourgeoisie the frequent lectures upon scientific aesthetic and economic subjects prove which are delivered especially in the socialist institutes and very well attended i have often heard working-men whose fustian jackets scarcely held together speak upon geological astronomical and other subjects with more knowledge than most quote-unquote cultivated bourgeois in germany possess and in how great a measure the english proletariat has succeeded in attaining independent education is shown especially by the fact that the epoch-making products of modern philosophical political and poetical literature are read by working-men almost exclusively the bourgeois enslaved by social conditions and the prejudices involved in them trembles blesses and crosses himself before everything which really paves the way for progress the proletarian has open eyes for it and studies it with pleasure and success in this respect the socialists especially have done wonders for the education of the proletariat they have translated the french materialists helvetius holbach diderot etc and disseminated them with the best english works in cheap editions strauss's life of jesus and proudhon's property also circulate among the working-men only shelley the genius the prophet shelley and byron with his glowing sensuality and his bitter satire upon our existing society find most of their readers in the proletariat the bourgeoisie owns only castrated editions family editions cut down in accordance with the hypocritical morality of to-day the two great practical philosophers of latest date bentham and godwin are especially the latter almost exclusively the property of the proletariat for though bentham has a school within the radical bourgeoisie it is only the proletariat and the socialists who have succeeded in developing his teachings a step forward the proletariat has formed upon this basis a literature which consists chiefly of journals and pamphlets and is far in advance of the whole bourgeois literature in intrinsic worth on this point more later one more point remains to be noticed the factory operatives and especially those of the cotton district form the nucleus of the labour movement lancashire and especially manchester is the seat of the most powerful unions the central point of chartism the place which numbers most socialists the more the factory system has taken possession of a branch of industry the more the working-men employed in it participate in the labour movement the sharper the opposition between working-men and capitalists 
the clearer the proletarian consciousness in the working-men. The small masters of Birmingham, though they suffer from the crises, still stand upon an unhappy middle ground between proletarian chartism and shopkeepers' radicalism. But in general, all the workers employed in manufacture are one for one form or the other of resistance to capital and bourgeoisie. And all are united upon this point, that they as working-men, a title of which they are proud, and which is the usual form of address in Chartist meetings, form a separate class, with separate interests and principles, with a separate way of looking at things, in contrast with that of all property-owners, and that in this class reposes the strength and the capacity of development of the nation. End of chapter 8